We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I'm your host, Rich Lamella. In the 77 years that pro basketball has been played, only one pure forward has grabbed more rebounds than today's guest. After winning a state title in high school in North Carolina, he had a stellar career in the ACC at Maryland and then won Rookie of the Year with the Nets in 1982. He'd be a key figure on two NBA Finals teams in Portland, where his blue-collar work ethic was on full display every night. In fact, in the first 16 years of his 17-year career, he never played less than 70 games, and he played in 80 or more 12 times. He also said it's, it's not who jumps the highest, it's who wants it the most. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Chasing Hardware, Mr. Buck Williams. Buck, welcome. That was very impressive, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, man, it. you just aged me overnight with all those stats and everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's plenty more where that came from, so, uh, so we'll get started. Um, so, Buck, I always like to go through a little bit of a, a player's background because I just think I think fans find it so fascinating. You're you're born in Rocky Mount, North Carolina, um, and you go to Rocky Mount High School, where, as I mentioned in the intro, your senior year, you win the 4A state title over Grimsley. Tell me a little bit about growing up in Rocky Mount. You know, what other sports you played? Was it always basketball? Uh, just tell me a little bit about, you know, kind of Rocky Mount and your high school years. Well, you know, growing up, I played a lot of sandlot basketball. You know, most of my sister in the backyard, um, she and I had some fierce competitions uh, playing sandlot basketball. So I started there and, and I didn't start playing organized basketball until I got to ninth grade at Arian Wilson High School, or junior high school. That yes. So, uh, I, I got started playing late. Uh, I love the game. It was so much fun growing up in Rocky Mount, uh, North Carolina. I got a chance to kind of roam out. Uh, it's very rural and a little bit in nature. And just enjoy just growing up in a, in a sort of rural environment. Sure. And I, I noticed that um, Phil Ford, University of North Carolina legend, was from your town, was four years ahead of you. So my guess is he didn't overlap in the school. But did you ever play against him, like, you know, on the playgrounds or anything like that? No, I didn't. Uh, Phil is kind of interesting. You know, Phil really inspired me to play basketball. He was a very exciting basketball player in high school. He would play with a chain in his mouth. And uh, the things that he was doing in, in Little Rocky Mount, it was like, you know, it's like the Beatles coming to town every time Phil Ford played. So I got a chance to see Phil play. And also got another, see another great player, John Lucas, who also uh, went to University of Maryland. And they would go head-to-head, two of the best uh, – Four guards that, that came out of uh, North Carolina, and I, I just found Phil really inspired me to play basketball. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't inherit his dribbling or uh, his passing ability, but uh, just his his way he played the game, play hard, and he respect the game. And I grew up watching him, and I just loved uh, watching Phil Ford play. And that's mm. and and your team, so your senior year, you're you're playing for a coach named Reggie Henderson. And you guys win the state title. You beat Grimsley. 
Um, tell me about that. Were you guys, you know, kind of preseason favorites or was it, you know, kind of a Cinderella team? How'd that come together? Well, you know, high school coach, uh, Reggie Emerson, he was not only my coach, but he was my best friend and my mentor. And he got me in the ninth grade to start playing basketball. And I never looked back. He really uh, carved out a niche for me. He made me play on the goal. And he said, every time the ball comes off, he made sure you rebound it. <laughs> So it, I could not, you know, go out 15 feet. He made me stay on the goal and really kind of taught me a lot about life. And he was like a, a coach and then he became a friend and then he became a mentor and a father figure. I mean, I owe so much to him because he's the one who inspired me to start playing basketball in ninth grade. And he's coached me from ninth grade to the 12th grade pretty much. So okay. I, I would love to him. Okay. And then um, and you mentioned your sister earlier. I, I saw a couple of interviews of her where she, she talks some smack. She's, she tells yeah, you that yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny to me. She's still telling my friends she used to beat me and say about basketball in the backyard. Uh, but it was, it was a lot of fun because she was the closest in age to me. It was a lot of fun uh, just growing up in Rocky Mountain, very small community, and all the neighbors kind of look out for each other. It, was, it, it really spread uh, a lot of my my, uh, who I am was growing up in that small town. Mm, that's cool. Um, and, and I have to ask the question because I've also seen in a bunch of video clips, you playing the piano. Now, is that something <laughs> you started at Rocky Mount or is that something you started later in life? <laughs> well, you know, we got bounced out of playoffs early in New Jersey, so I had to pick up some hobbies. <laughs> 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 so yeah, yeah, I played piano one year, one year, got in genealogy, I did that. I've been doing it for 30 years. Oh, I'm wow. a genealogy research. Um, I have, I'm an aviator. I get my pilot's license. Thanks to New Jersey Nets and getting bounced out of playoffs in the first round. <laughs> 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 you know, I'm like a renaissance man. I mean, I've I never seen that I feel I can't do. I, I love a good challenge. I love, I love to you know, try to read and stay current on things going on. I'm a history buff. Uh, I love uh, Porsches, you know, I love cars and collectible cars. Uh, I, just, I just, my interest is just so broad. Uh, basketball, I, I love basketball, but I think what really motivated me to play basketball is trying to get out of poverty. Uh, when I first started playing, uh, I was trying to find a way to, to get out of poverty and basketball was the vehicle I thought I could use to get out of, out of uh, poverty. And sure. as it turned out, it, it was a, a great vehicle to use. And I love the game. But I don't know if I had the kind of passion, you know, initially of growing up. I just had a great work ethic. And I think that's I applied to so many things in my life. It's really been a difference. Like I said, I love basketball, but I think it was a work ethic, you know. Every time I touch something, I always feel I have to do it extreme to be the best at it. And basketball was that vehicle I used. And my high school coach had a little called a rebound in the day, a little dusty rebound back in the corner. You probably old enough to remember the rebound. Sure. If you jump up. It's a ball that comes out of the little chute. Yeah. You jump over the page or to pull it down against the hydraulic or the pump or whatever. And uh, it was in the gym and no one never used it. So I saw it one day and I was challenged to see how many, how far I could jump up and how many rebounds I could pull off that thing. And it became nature. And it really, I really honed my, my rebounding skills from just working off of that rebound at a very young age. It's not by fluke or uh, a luck that I became a rebounder. I put a lot of time in and worked at rebounding basketball. Yeah. The other thing, being consistent, you know, being consistent in life, being consistent as a rebounder, shooter, whatever. Uh, you can be a great rebounder. You got to go out for every rebound. You can't go out for just one rebound. You got to go out for all of them. It's like Steph Curry. When he shoots the ball, he, he's going to shoot it every time. You know, he's going to go he's looking for every shot he can get his hands on. And that's yep. a sign of, you know, true greatness when you're able to, to hone those kind of skills and, and be that good at some efficiency. Yeah. That's that's awesome. Um, and then and then it was off to Maryland, and you know, kind of growing up in ACC country, was it always going to be Maryland, or were there a bunch of schools you were looking at? How did you narrow it down to uh, playing for Lefty Drizel? Well, my mom and my community had me paid to go to the University of North Carolina, but it was some rumors, I guess, that you know, uh, about my grades uh, coming out of, out of school. Um, I was a, a decent student, decent student, but I was a great student. And I think someone tipped Dean Smith off that I, I don't know if I'd get in North Carolina, but at the end of the day, uh, Dean Smith accepted me in the University of North Carolina. I, I decided not to go to the University of North Carolina and decided to go to Maryland. But Lefty was at my front door every day. He was the, great, the greatest, 
recruiter ever has ever walked on this earth. And he's very colorful. He related very well to my family. He talked to me and talked about barbecue and talked about Southern foods that my family grew up on. And my parents really related to him uh, well. And I guess that's one reason why uh, I ended up in Maryland. But my mom's favorite color is Carolina blue. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so she had me, she wanted me to go to North Carolina so badly. But I just thought that Maryland was a better fit for me. Sure. You know, North Carolina started playing late. North Carolina had a tendency, Dean Smith had a tendency to bring his players along very slowly. But yep. they always say that Michael Jordan, uh, best defender was Dean Smith because he held him back so much from being a great player. But Dean believed in bringing his guys along very slowly and making them earn their seniority and, and earn them play, their place on the team. But I needed to step in right away and get more playing time. And I fit up, I went to University of, of University of Maryland. I could go in and play early. And at the turn, that was a great decision. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's cool. So you got into both and chose Maryland. And yeah. and you yeah. know, it's interesting that you say about Lefty Drizel, his recruiting, because you mentioned one guy, John Lucas, and also Tom McMillan, who would end up in the House of Representatives, Len Elmore, who'd be a, a Rhodes Scholar. I mean, he, he brought in some serious talent in those years. Yes, he did. I mean, you know, those games against North Carolina State uh, in Maryland, those, those uh, games that go down in history. Uh, Maryland, uh, you know, just being in the nation's capital, being one of the greatest recruiters, a very good coach and left him there. By the way, I'm so, I'm so happy for him to get into the Hall of Fame. Very, very deserving. Yeah. And, uh, but he, he really uh, further extended this whole work ethic for me. I mean, his whole game plan, his whole um, system is built around working hard. And in the way we play, we play like an NBA style of game. He just very uh, up and down, pick and rolls. Uh, so the transition to the pros is pretty easy after coming out of his program. Mm. And and one year ahead of you there is Albert King, who's right. Bernard's younger brother, and he comes down from Fort Hamilton in um, in New York City. Right. What was it like? Did you guys kind of hit it off immediately? Because as we'll go into in a few minutes, not only do you play at Maryland with him for three years, you then both get drafted in the top ten to the Nets together. So then you play with each other for a long time with the Nets. Tell me about Albert. Well, Albert was my best man in my wedding. Uh, he's my roommate in college. Uh, when I came here, for some reason, Albert liked me. I don't know why he liked me so much. Uh, his parents were from the South, and he was very highly recruited, probably the number one recruiter in the nation uh, when he came out of school. And he was very, he's like a recluse. I mean, he would not come out of his dorm room. He barely come out to go to class. And I don't know what it was about me. I was a quiet, kind of introvert. And he kind of took a liking to me. We became roommates and best friends. Uh, but I really, uh, when I first went on the first recruiting trip to Maryland, I was in practice, watching a practice. Uh, and I saw this guy doing things that I hadn't seen before. So he would go in offensively, jackknifing, taking the ball to the other side of the goal. He had a real flair to his game. And I kind of marveled at you know, the, the prospect of playing with him. So that's another reason why I decided to go to Maryland, the opportunity to play with Albert King and Ernest Graham and Greg Manning, who was a great, you know, great team back in the day. So yeah. uh, he's, he's one of my best friends to this day. Uh, good guy. Going well, you know, with his franchise and stuff that he owns. And uh, I owe him a lot of credit because he kind of took me on his wings uh, when I got to the University of Maryland. The first recruiting trip with Albert, back in the day, they give you $10, $20, or whatever, $100 to take the new recruiter out. So they gave Albert like $100 to take me out on a recruiting trip. We go out, you know, I'm out at the party, having a good time with everyone on campus. And, and I look around, you know, I, I don't know anyone at this party. I look around, Albert is gone. He don't take a hundred dollars. He don't gone back to his dorm or he don't go out. <laughs> so he's walking out, don't know his way around anywhere. And he don't left me at some some uh, mixer on campus. <laughs> so in spite of that, I still went to the University of Maryland. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Oh, that's funny. Right, right. <laughs> that's great. Um, and and your first year there. So every now and then I love like just you know, kind of looking at the roster, looking at the schedule. I saw something on your schedule that it would be almost impossible to duplicate. You guys in an eight game stretch over the course of like two weeks, I mean, it's no period of time at all. You play number two, UNC, number one, Notre Dame, number three, Duke, number six, North Carolina, and number three, Duke. And you kind of split. I think you go two and three. All the games are like one or two points. I think one was nine points. Um, 
you know, there were like two or three other games thrown in there, but that's five out of eight, eight games. That was just like a murderer's row. I mean, and, and that's, you know, that's life in the ACC. But oh, by the way, also Notre Dame. Um, tell me a little bit about that. That's, you're not in high point anymore. Yeah, clearly, clearly, ACC at that time the best compass in the whole country. You know, Phil Ford, myself, you know, Michael Jordan, all the great, a lot of great players, Walter Davis, Cornbread Maxwell, you know, Larry Nance, the list just goes on and on and on. And I was very fortunate to play in that league. And matter of fact, my sophomore year from the senior graduate, my senior Larry Gibson, who was the center on the team, graduated. And coach said, what I'm going to do, I don't have a center. So he said, I'm going to put Buck in the center position. So he put him in the center position to get some of the best centers in the country, you know, Ralph Sampson, Mike Jaminski, Larry Nance, uh, uh, big kid down in, in uh, Clemson. So it was, uh, it was a monster, you know, by playing in that ACC conference. It made me a much better basketball player. I mean, if you come out of ACC conference as a, a great player, I mean, you you want to, that says a lot. It speaks volumes about you as a player because uh, clearly that's that's the best conference in the country. I don't know about now, but back in my day, it was the best conference. Yeah, and and you guys go to two straight ACC tournament finals. Your your um, sophomore year, you win the ACC regular season, mm-hmm. and then you go to the ACC final that year. You lose to Duke. And then your junior year, which is your last year, you lose to North Carolina by one. So, um, so you know, obviously. North Carolina was our Achilles heel. <laughs> Let's say that again. Dean Smith and North Carolina was our Achilles heel. You know, Dean Smith, for some reason, made the close games against uh, against us, man. Uh, somehow, Dean Smith was pulled out. Uh, so, we always say that he was the Achilles heel as far as, uh, as far as our team was concerned. You know, University of North Carolina. But yeah. some great rivalries down there, you know. He don't care. He can lose all the games in the year. As long as he beat Dean Smith in ACC, he was happy. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And, and you're, so your sophomore year, and uh, you guys go to the Sweet 16, you lose to Sleepy Floyd in Georgetown. And then that's the summer of 80. And you make the Olympic team. Dave Gavitt is the coach. I think Larry Brown is one of the assistants. Yeah. Is that right? Uh-huh. Yeah. And you make the team, and then they boycott. Uh, they boycott going to Moscow. How, like, tell me about the experience of trying out and also how crushing was it finding out that you weren't going to go? You know what's so crazy? They told everyone when you try out, don't go home, wait and see who's on the list to make the team. I was, oh, you know, I played well in, in, in the trials. I said, I was so homesick, I just wanted to get back home. So I, I got out and played and flew home. And as soon as I landed, I got a call from the Olympic Committee saying you, you made the uh, Olympic team. I was like, what? And they were pretty upset with me because I, I decided to come back home. But it was, it was a great experience. Uh, you know, some of the best coaches, Dick Gavitt and uh, Larry Brown. Uh, Larry Brown's where our relationship started. Who I think is probably one of the greatest coaches ever coached. Uh, just he could take mediocre players and turn them into very good basketball players. I think it's a sign of a, a great coach. Yeah. And Larry. Larry just was just, he was a teacher, he would keep you, you know, out to practice, make you work on your game fundamentals, and get you there before practice, work on your fundamentals. And this guy is so, he's one of the most passionate people, coaches I ever met about the game of basketball and playing yeah. the game the right way. So I had the opportunity to, to play on the Olympic uh, uh, trials and also uh, on the Olympic team. It was a great experience, but it was frustrating. They get a chance to play internationally, but at the end of the day, it turned out it's always a civil lining. We played against the U.S. All Stars NBA team, All Stars, and that was the greatest experience because you know that's what I want to be one day. I got a chance to play some of the greatest players on that summer uh, around the, around the country, and it's a good experience. Yeah, and you guys, you play those All Star teams, and you guys go five and one. So right. you're probably kind of thinking to yourself, I can do this. Like I can play with these guys. Yeah, all doubts, all doubts I had about my game was sort of erased game when I played against guys like Lonnie Shelton, Marvin Lucas. Those guys played that summer against us in Olympic team. And it was, it was, you know, Isaiah Thomas, uh, Hall of Famer, good friend of mine, uh, Michael Brooks, Sam Bowie, just, uh, you know, Daniel Valentine. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of great players on that team. Uh, so I, I enjoyed this game. Yeah. 
Um, I have to ask the question, what's it like going, what's it like being, you know, whatever you are, 19 or 20 years old, playing against Maurice Lucas? Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, it gets even, even worse because when I got drafted by the New Jersey Nets, their power forward was Maurice Lucas. <laughs> he was there. When I got to New Jersey, I was like, oh, my God, you guys are killing me. Right. Uh, because we against them every day in practice. What's so unique about it, Maurice knew I was the heir apparent. He knew that. Going in, he knew he's going to trade it, but in spite of that kind of person he is, he still took money's wings and taught me how to play the game as a power forward. And every my, I've patterned my game after Marcus Lucas' game since he was there in New Jersey, and he just took money's wings and we remained great friends forever. Uh, but I, I uh, it was kind of crazy uh, to be, you know, having him as a be, you know, to him tutor me. So it was the greatest experience in New Jersey. Larry Brown. Uh, and Maurice, uh, I mean, Larry always liked the, the young guys. He, he liked the young guys who were approachable. And, you know, Maurice looked at some of the old veterans. Larry Brown didn't like them as much because he thought they were not the uh, stepping coaches. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And you walk into, so you leave early, which at the time, not a ton of guys were doing. Um, <laughs> but you, you leave early. And I guess I, re I read somewhere that, you know, Lefty was kind of telling you, just make sure the money is guaranteed. Like, don't do this if it's not, you know, a certain number. And you kind of got the assurance uh, at the last minute, and you were like, I'm going. Let me that tell you what Lefty also said. You know, he always uses hands and he talks. He said, Buck, I'm trying to tell you, son, you're not going to be playing against Ralph Sampson in the NBA. You're going to be playing against Moses Malone, son. You need to understand that now if you leave school. <laughs> he, was, he was doing everything good. You know, he sent me down to his uh, beach house, and his beach house he had down in Virginia. He went down. He said, "We're going down to my beach house, son. Just think about what night you want to leave school tonight." Uh, but it was—it was. It was uh, he, he really uh, supported me in my decision, but he really wanted me to stay in school. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can understand why. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so you do leave. And it's, it's kind of an interesting, so obviously, like we said, you and Albert both come in, so you're both out of Maryland. Michael Corrin is there uh, from North Carolina. Jaminski's there from Duke. I yeah. mean, you got like an ACC team, basically. Right. Um, and Len Elmore, uh, right. your, fresh, your rookie year, Len Elmore is there, um, right. you know, Maryland guy. Did you know him? You know, I, obviously, you didn't overlap at Maryland. He was like, whatever, like eight or 10 years ahead of you. But did you right. know him at all? Yeah, I, would meet, I met Lenny uh, just being at the University in uh, Tom. He would always come back in summertime. So we had a chance to kind of get to know him a little bit. And uh, he gave us a lot of uh, insight, a lot of wisdom when he came back. Uh, John Lucas, all those guys would come back. And uh, it was really nice to go out and, you know, practice with those guys and play against them in the summertime. And they, they're like Maryland guys, through and through. You know, they always – uh, supported the program and always were around. And that's what I thought about being money. They want access to those kind of guys. Cool. Um, and yeah, as we you know, as we talked about, so Larry Brown, who was one of the assistants on the on the Olympic team, who you obviously spent time with, he's now the head coach with the Nets. So you come in and you guys, you, there's a 20 game improvement your rookie year. You guys go from I think it was 24 wins the year before you got there, 44. Um, right. And so, uh, and you're the rookie of the year, and you go to the All Star game, which is yeah. nice. Um, and you've got guys like Otis Birdsong and Ray Williams, yeah. in addition to Lenny Elmore. Um, and then the next year, it's kind of weird. The team's doing well again. In fact, you're doing better. Yeah. And then Larry Brown leaves with like a handful of games to go. What, what exactly? I mean, we we all know Larry leaves a lot, <laughs> but yeah. what's happening there. It was disappointing because you know I've been with Larry and, and got a lot of confidence in him. And not only was he a great coach, he's like a friend and a father figure to me in a way. Uh, father figure away from home. And I used to go to his house, you know, we used to go out on the road and do about like 12 different colors of polo shirts or whatever. And he had me wear polo shirts. <laughs> <laughs> polo shirts and dressing like Larry. A lot of my teammates said, you know, man, you know, he was in New Jersey, you know, you used to dress just like Larry Brown. <laughs> you know, because, you know, Larry's a very snazzy dresser. But I I, uh, I learned a lot from Larry. I was disappointed. Uh, but Larry, he never saw a team or player he didn't like. And the thing about Larry would like you for, you know, for like six weeks or six months, and then he's on to liking something else. But 
uh, he, he never saw a job in life. Mm -hmm. He was bouncing around in college and going back to college pros or whatever because, you know, this is calling your life, calling life as a coach. Yeah. And I, I couldn't be mad at him. I mean, he just, just he enjoyed doing it. I think he's still well, the old guy. He, he, he couldn't teach on the pro level. Larry, I don't think Larry Clay could really teach on the pro level. He could teach on the collegiate level. So I guess that's why he always felt he had the same favor going back to uh, college basketball. Mm, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I think he's still the only guy to have won an NCAA title as a head coach yeah. and an NBA title, right. which is pretty crazy. And, oh, by the way, also went to another NBA final and another NCAA final. So, I mean, he's taking four different teams to champion. Pretty crazy. Yeah, uh, it's, just, it's funny, though, because guys now, they love coaching now. They, they get these great players and they win, you know, a lot of games. Uh, but you go back and look over the players that Larry Brown coached. He has some good players, very good players. But if you look what he got out of those guys, man, it's no comparison. He never inherited uh, like a team like uh, San Antonio. He never inherited a team like uh, the Lakers. I never heard a team like Boston. You know, that's, that's uniqueness of Larry Brown. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. Um, and on that team, at one point, your second year, Daryl Dawkins is on the team. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I asked about him because I had the chance to interview World Be Free. And oh, I swear God, God. he had me in stitches telling me Daryl Dawkins stories. <laughs> Daryl was a evil character. I mean, he should have been a comedian. Because yeah. he never was serious about basketball. So I think basketball is a way of him just to make money. But his, his true passion, I think, was in, in humor and making people laugh. I mean, that's, that's Daryl Dawkins. And he was more talented than Shaq. I mean, he could dribble the ball. He strong, probably as strong as Shaq. But Shaq had a, had a serious about him and became a great player. Where Daryl never got a serious, he never dedicated himself to be a great, great player. So it was fun being in the locker room. He was always laughing. But as far as, you know, a teammate, he's a good teammate, but he just never really uh, serious about the game being a great player. Yeah. I, uh, World B said that uh, his favorite line was he'd be talking to a bunch of reporters around his locker and he'd be like, okay, you guys need any other quotes? Because I'm happy to make something up for you. <laughs> <laughs> I got to for you. You know, I know how funny it's going to be, but we were in, he tells the story, Daryl Dog tells the story, he was in Buffalo. It was freezing cold in Buffalo. Buffalo. Freezing cold. He said he was up there playing, you know, Buffalo and they were on a bus. And he said that, uh, you know, bus stop. It's like a blizzard outside. And uh, he said that uh, it was so cold in Buffalo, he said a greyhound on the outside of the bus came inside the bus because it was so cold. <laughs> this guy, I mean, he should have been a video, man. I mean, office, man. He's crazy. That's awesome. <laughs> That's really funny. Um, and you also, that year, you also had Phil Ford on your team, which is kind of cool. A couple of high school guys. I mean, obviously, again, you yeah. overlap, but. It was great. It was great. I mean, we're from the same hometown and everybody in North Carolina and good to me to go to North Carolina. It was, it was real cool. That, you know, it was like a big family almost because I had Albert King. Then I had Vinnie uh, uh, Elmore and then Phil Ford. I mean, like Michael Corn guys I played against. Yeah. It was just a, a great environment and our and ownership created there in New Jersey. And we enjoyed each other. Now we didn't win as many games we wanted to, we really enjoyed it. It was a great camaraderie on the team. Uh and I and I and I kind of, you know, it was fun. It was just fun as a rookie and being on the team with a lot of veterans that kind of help you kind of navigate uh through the NBA. Sure. So now coming in as a rookie or whatever, those kind of veterans no longer around anymore. So you have like babies raising babies. And mm -hmm. trying to learn how to play the game and deal with things off the court. So it's unfortunate because we have more veterans around the NBA in terms of coaching and in terms of uh, just being on the team. I think Miami's got it right by keeping Hasm around for a while. Uh, so I think it, it, you need that progression. You need the older guys to kind of show the younger guys how, how to be a true professional. Yeah. Because I, I took so much from the veterans in our team as a rookie. Mm -hmm. And and uh, the the next year, you guys one of the great upsets in, in playoff history. The 76ers win the title in '83 with you know Moses Malone with the fofo form you know call and Dr. J and Bobby Jones and all that stuff. Mo Cheeks, Andrew uh, Andrew Tony, 
Um, you, the Nets have not won a playoff series since they came from the NBA. You guys go to Philadelphia, you win too. Pretty easily. You win by like 15 or 16 points. You come back to New Jersey, you're thinking, we're going to put them away. It's a five-game series. The, the mascot in the third quarter pulls out a broom and starts <laughs> in front of Dr. J. <laughs> I, I read Otis Bird's song was like, oh, hell no. <laughs> and of course, the 76ers, you know, crush you the next two games uh, yeah. because you don't poke the bear. No, uh, and then, but then you guys go back to Philly and you win game five on the road. So every game is on the road. One of the great upsets of all time. You go 17.16 rebounds. Michael Ray Richardson is just on fire. Um, and, and I mean, how cool was that? Like, it's your first playoff series win. It's the franchise's first playoff series win in the NBA. What was that like? Uh, just one of the greatest teams that they ever played in the game. But it was the face of the game. They were older teams. We had young, fresh legs. And we just did a lot of losing transition all night. When we got the rebound, everyone run out. And Moses and Bob, they just could not keep up with the pace of the game. That first game was too much. Uh, and we knew that was our uh, asset that we had, our ability to transition. That was the advantage we had over there. And, and Michael Ray Richardson, I read that, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, a troubled player and was ultimately banned from the NBA, you know, for repeated drug offenses. I read where you said that he was he was one of the guys who really, really helped your career, um, you know, in many facets. Among other things, he would go down and talk trash to the opposing power <laughs> forward <laughs> before the game. Yeah. You know, he'd just stutter like, you know, he'd go down and say, pop, pop, to go kick your butt tonight. You got a proud of guys. And so now that means I got to be ready to play now because he don't go on down and bump the bear, scare the horns neck. So uh, he would do that. You know, guy, I mean, guys like Maurice, you know, the best power forwards in the game, you go down there and tell him that. And uh, come back and start smiling. You know what I told him? You're going to kick his butt tonight. <laughs> well, thanks, man. Appreciate it. <laughs> but, you know, sugar rain. You know, people talking about, you know, comparing them to like Magic Johnson. You look at point guards, Sugar was, uh, I can't say he was good, as good as, as Magic, but this guy, he wasn't much different than the two. Uh, Michael was one of the best point guards ever laced him up. You know, because he got caught up in the drugs and things of that nature, uh, kind of derailed his career. But he was, uh, he was a monster. He was a monster. You talking about, Magic, right below Magic, you got Mike Ray Richardson. Yeah. And uh, he, he was big, he was fast, he could shoot the ball, he could run a team. He was just, he made my life easy. I just walk on the court and he's going to give me five or six assists just coming down the box. Right. So if I run the floor, it's going to be a great night for me. So he, I care a lot to Michael. He, he really made the game easy for me. And that's what great players do. They made the right. game easy for me. Yeah, that, that's that's very cool, um, and uh, and th th and then the, the kind of the last couple of years in New Jersey, you know, the the team is you know kind of getting, you're winning less games every year. But I was going to ask one question, you Paul Silas one year is an assistant on your team, and you know here you are one of the premier rebounders of all time, yeah. and there he is one of the premier. Tell me about yeah. that. Did you guys you know did you pick each other's brain or how'd that work? It was so cool, man, because I found myself sitting a lot on the plane. And uh, we developed a very good uh, friendship because, you know, one powerful is speaking to another powerful. We understand the language. We, you know, I mean, I understand the language when I speak to a bard or a small fool. But one powerful, powerful, there's, there's, there's something unique about that position. You're getting a rebound, you're protecting other guys. You're really the focal point. You're the most unselfish guy on the team because. You don't get a consistent flow with the basketball. You don't throw the ball uh, consistently. You got to go get it. Uh, so a lot of the work you're doing is work that you kind of create yourself and can make other guys better. So Paul and I, we always have conversations around that and how you're so uh, powerful position, so underrated. You know, you look at probably powerful guys in the Hall of Fame or powerful guys, you know, great power forward. No one talks about them. They always talk about the guys that are scoring. And Moses Long, Moses Long always said to me, he said, fuck, 
anybody can, can shoot a basketball. <laughs> but very beautiful coming in baby defense and rebounding. Being a great rebounder, no one is no one is set a pick for you. No one is screaming you to get open. Right. Every time that ball goes up on the rim, you gotta go up there and get it. If you don't go up there and get it, you're not gonna you're not gonna get it. You're not gonna right. get the That's your whole game. Whereas a shooter, I mean, guys will throw your ball, you you gonna set picks for you, they're gonna get you open, you know, they're gonna get you in an open area, they're gonna isolate the floor for you. And the thing I like about the power four position. You, you, you eat what you kill. Right. You, know, you kind of eat what you kill. And, it, and it's, all, it's all on you um, to, to get that ball and get it out to your teammates. Yeah. And you can shoot and do that thing. Interesting. I, I never really thought about it like that. That's, uh, that's, that's fascinating. And, you know, and oh, by the way, you're playing in the 80s and the 90s in like the golden age. And we'll, we'll get into it later. But my God, I mean, like the list just oh, goes on. You know the the Rodmans and the Barclays and the, obviously Carl Malone, who's the one guy who has more rebounds than you at the forward position. You know, and and the list goes on. Um, and we can talk a little bit more about it. But you know, you didn't get a night off. And you know, you know back in the rules, what I come up who's a goat and all this other stuff, and it's it's kind of hilarious in a way because the rules, the rules are different. The rules are different. One point in time is not a three point shot. So to say someone is a goat, you got to put them in the same era, the same the same condition to say they're the goat. Uh, so I think you know maybe Mike was a goat for his era. You can say LeBron LeBron is a goat for his era, but to say one or two is a goat, I don't think that's that's really fair because it's a separate set of rules. The way the rules that LeBron is playing with now, he's strong enough to play in my era. You know, saying for that all the hand checking, all that stuff. You saw how it impacted Michael. Against the Detroit Pistons. I mean, that's covered every night, you know, before they changed the rules when Michael came in. That was right. every night. So those guys played in the 70s. Dude, you had to fight, it was physical, not taking anything away from guys that are playing now. Because I probably couldn't play in this era because I'd be fouled out in two or three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then you have to play on the, on the perimeter. But there are a lot of guys that couldn't play in my era either. Oh, they couldn't take the physicality. Right. Steph Curry, a great shooter. He still have been a, a very good player, but a lot of people kind of question whether or not he could play with the physicality in my own and be that great. Uh, so it's, it's kind of interesting the way the game kind of has evolved. And it's, it's evolved through viewership. It, the game is evolving the way from television, the TV contracts. So it's like what the fans want, what they want the scoring. If you want to show the skill set of the players, and that's what the ratings are, are, are definitely one of their ratings. That's the NBA and player associations able to shape the game for the viewership. Right. And I, I can't say it's nothing is fixed. It's still the game of basketball. But you go, you put a three point shot in, you make it less physical, and you begin to make modifications to the game. Like now, the passing is not important as much. Uh, you know, the rebounding and defense is like non-existent. So it is kind of interesting just watching the game evolve. The thing about it, I love about the game, the viewership is still as popular as ever, which is yeah. great. And it makes me happy to see how the game has evolved. The players have evolved, and it's still very popular. It's still commanding, you know, uh, a, a lot of revenue for the players and for the league. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, and, and we're going to talk about the revenue in, in, a, in a couple of minutes because you had a very interesting role towards the end of your career. Uh, but I had to ask one other thing. In, in, your, in your years with the Nets, and I, I just interviewed uh, Paul Molitor, the old Milwaukee Brewer and Toronto mm -hmm. Blue Jay, and Bob Euchre was one of their announcers. And so I was asking him, what's it like traveling with Bob Euchre around the country? And I have to ask you, you had Bill Raftery. What oh, was it? What was it like with Raft? I mean, you know, he's a pretty entertaining guy. Well, Raft is just always about fun. I mean, he, 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 another guy, he loves what he does. I mean, he's uh, very engaging on, on television. Always talking about, you know, kiss off the glass is his favorite line. A kiss. Yeah, onions. You know, we, you know, we had it every night in Jersey. And uh, a great guy. And uh, it was just fun, you know, just watching him in front of the camera. And so then 
so last couple of years in New Jersey, like the, you know, the last couple of years are, are you know pretty bad, like you know twenty some wins and two wins right. and all. And then you get traded to you get traded for Sam Bowie to uh, to Portland. Uh, Morris Lucas and Bowie, uh, he was one of the assistant coaches in Portland. And he was talking to the management all the time, man. Buffalo got here. The chemistry that he put together those years I was here was phenomenal. We were great teammates on the court, great teammates off the court. And that that lineup, I mean, that's one of the more iconic lineups of like the last 25 or 30 years in basketball. For starters, and I, I talked about it with regard to you at the beginning of the show, I couldn't believe this when I saw it. You, Duckworth, and Kersey, the front line, played, started in and played every single game. The entire front line played 82 oh, games wow. in the season. The guards, uh, Terry Porter played 80, and Drexler played 73. Wow. There were two other guys started games that year. One of them started like one game. I mean, it was insane. Like you guys were there every game. You know, that's the difference. If you come out winning championships, you got to stay injury-free uh, during, during that run to the playoffs. And you found so many teams I've seen. Yet. One year down with Chris Paul in Houston. They would be going to stay with Chris Paul to get injured. They right. didn't have they were the championship. So it's so critical in to keep the guys healthy. You know, Boston all those years they won Bird and those guys, you know, they was managing, you know, the injury because those guys stayed healthy for uh, a long time. You know, back in the day, you just wouldn't take games off. <laughs> you know, you coach may tell you, look, you know, you're only gonna play, you know, 15 minutes tonight, but you're gonna play. You're not gonna be in street clothes, but you're just gonna play, you're gonna manage your minutes and playing. You're not gonna be sit it out. So that's the way it was back in the day. You're training back in the day. Anything happened to you, I would say, you know, drink a beer and put some ice on it. <laughs> that was old school. So you, you had to get past the trainer before you could get to the coach uh, to sit out, practice, or sit out again. So the trainer, you know, you go and tell the trainer, look, man, I, I need it. I don't feel well. And you can look at the sideways and say, we're going to we'll get you ready. You can get, get back out there and play. Right. So you didn't have all this load management. Say that again. After the injuries were less than the players that are playing today. Right. Yeah. Which is which is crazy. I, I love that line. Put some ice on it and drink a beer. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, and that year, you guys go to the finals, and you you go up against the the bad boys Detroit team. Um, you know, Lambeer and Rodman and Sally and James Donaldson. Obviously, just a you know, and defending champs. Oh, by the way, those three guards. It was a lot. It was a lot of our team. So those three guards uh, really uh, kind of made the difference in that, in that series. Because right. I think we won the third game or the second game in Detroit. So we thought we were in a good position. They go back to Portland and sweep three games. That never happened. We were devastated. We, no team was going to come to that place and sweep three games. At least what three games out there. And that just didn't happen to our team. Right. And we, we just, we were dumbfounded. We, we had no answer. And then, and then the next year, you guys are, you know, really good. I mean, you guys start off 27 and three the next year. You guys have an insane start to the season. Right. Um, and then you just run into LA in the playoffs and they just had your number that year. They won in one game. They broke us. So we won every home game we played. And they, Lakers came in at one game. What they did, they put magic at low, low box. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and let them play out of the low box, low post. And... We could have seen every answer for that. Uh, and they, they got that game. They would go back to LA in the Tyson game on a fast break. Her reporter told him Phil Roberts, he dropped the ball for a layup to give us the lead. Uh, so we had won 63 games and that was probably the best, best we played as a group that second year. We won 63 games. We rolled, she rolled everyone that year. That yeah. was the year. So the Lakers beat us and they went on the play. Chicago was kind of dismounted the Lakers in the playoffs. Yeah, that was, that was Michael's first title, that 91 team against right. them. Right. Yeah. I would love to play them in uh, 91. I would love to play against Michael in 91. Team we had, it was, it was very special. We had beaten them in the, in the regular season, Chicago, uh, in that year. Yeah. And then, and then you got them the next year. Um, you guys, you guys, beat you well, you first, you knock off the Lakers, so you get past them. I think for the first time, the first time in like ten years or something. <clears throat> um, and then you go through Phoenix and Utah, and you get Chicago again, and you know a great series. I mean, it's a six-game series. Yeah. Uh, what do you remember from that one? 
Uh, what I do recall in the fourth quarter, we had control of the game in the fourth quarter. Uh, and Phil Jackson put in the role guys in the game. The role guys got them back in the game. The role guys got them back in the game. And Michael came in and finished us off. Interesting. So we, we, we had control of the game. I, I, I couldn't believe we, we lost that game. That was that was a thorn in my side because we should, we should, I thought we should have won that game. Yeah. So we, we had control of the game. Uh, the role guys came in and, and played, played very well. Yeah, that's we interesting. Game. I guess guys like Craig Hodges and yeah, Scott Williams. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Played, oh, interesting. And and for the for the good chunk of your run there, Rick Edelman was the coach, yeah. uh, and I've read that you know you you really like playing for him. Did you know yeah. anything about him before you got there, or was he kind of a revelation to you when you got there? Well, Rick was assistant coach for Mike Schuler. Uh, so okay. when Mike Schuler got fired, he gave, you know, Clyde directly talked to management and made him promise to give Rick the job. Hmm. So Rick is the job. So Rick is a player's coach, phenomenal X and O guy. But what I Thinking about Rick the most, how he relates to people. He knows his players. He knows who he can push. He knows how to get in their head to get what he needs to get out of them. And uh, I just love playing for him. He he's, has such has such insight on players and getting them in the right position where they could be successful. That's cool. That's awesome. And and towards your end, towards the end of your time there, two things happen. One is you trade Drexler, which obviously you know is probably a gut punch. Yeah, and he, he goes to Houston, and you get Otis Thorpe. And Otis Thorpe is another guy I think of. When I think of, like, rebounding in you know, kind of 80s and 90s, I think of, you know, you and a, a handful of other guys and Otis Thorpe. What was it like having a guy like him, you know, next to you in the locker room? Otis, I'm the kind of guy I always looked up to when he started playing ball. I was his, his sort of role model of the guy that he, he kind of, you know, looked up to as a power forward. So it was kind of fun kind of, you know, having him uh, in practice and talking to him and, and kind of, you know, being a big teacher, being a teacher for him. So it was, it was real cool. Yeah, that's cool. And and then in your last year, uh, Arvita Sabonis comes over from, um, from you know, from the Soviet Union. And he's one of those guys who, you know, anybody following basketball, there's like, you, you'd always back then in the 80s and you know, whatever, you'd be reading about these European guys. And you know, Petrovic came over. A few guys started to slowly come over. He was the name we always heard. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, he's playing with you guys. What, what was Sabonis like? You know, Portland courted him, courted Sabonis for many years. Yeah. And we, and we got him right at the tail end of his career. Really probably should be retired because he had probably no mobility, but he was a great passer. Uh, and he just didn't have the impact he, he, he would have had when he was younger. So they finally got him, and, and he was still he was still a very good player. And I enjoy playing with him because I mean his passing me. He reminds me of a kid in Denver now. I mean, but he, he didn't have that kind of range, but in terms of passing, understanding the game, uh, making his teammates better, he was he was the first time he, he was a, he was the main guy. So I'm like joking. If you look at bonus back in the day, you look at joking you'll see a lot of similarities. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Um, now, towards the end of your career, your last couple of years in Portland and then and then your, your two years in New York, um, you're also not only playing, but you're the NBA Players Association president yeah. and for three years, uh, which is a pretty lengthy time. And I was looking at the list of prior presidents. I mean, it's a who's who. Bob Cousy, Tommy yeah. Heinsohn, uh, Oscar Robertson, Silas, Bob Lanier, Isaiah, Patrick Ewing. So you're right in there. Is that something that you sought or did they come to you and say, dude, you got to do this? Well, no, I think Chris Walker in my first year when I was in New Jersey, it's about you need to be the player up on the team. So he kind of pushed me in that direction my rookie year. So that's okay. And I got involved and it was the greatest experience of my life. Because most of our meetings, I would see my items. Ada Bushu, I would see Florida Pearl, I would see, you name them. I mean, Russell, Chamberlain, dude, I was, I couldn't believe it. I mean, That's cool. guys that I grew up with, like these guys were like, you know, they were like gladiators. I mean, it was, that was I, I really enjoyed it probably more than almost anything I've done. 
Hmm. Being president of the union and being a player rep because the camaraderie of that team, camaraderie, Bob Cousy, dudes like that, Jerry West, uh, we did meet with Jerry West and all the, all the greats. I, I had conversations with all the greats. Uh, Bob, uh, Bob Lanier, uh, Andy Archibald. So, I got a chance to I got a chance to meet all the great basketball players. That's probably the coolest job I've ever Yeah, that's cool. And I was looking <clears throat> the year before. So when you came in the league, <clears throat> excuse me, when you came in the league, the average salary was like just over 200 grand. Yeah. <laughs> the year before you took over as the president of the Players Association, it was 1.1. The year after you left, three years later, it was 2.3. It was up 110% over those three years. Uh, that you were, you know, kind of overseeing the players' associations. Pretty good return. It was a great return. I think the thing about it, what we did when, when I first towards the end, the NBA had certain pockets of revenue that the players did not uh, get a part of. Right. So what we did, we made NBA put all that money in one place, one pocket, and we called it basketball related income. So the players get there 40, 45, 40 percent, and owners get there 45, 50 percent, or whatever. And it increased the sales exponentially. I mean, because now you had all the revenue, and it's very easy to you know, get your fair share of it. A lot of players to this day, they think that they're getting paid because they're the greatest basketball player. They're getting paid most because they have, we said, they have to get their percentage of the salaries. So right. back in my day, you had to be a great player first. And then, once you pull your great player, then you get paid. Nowadays, they have to pay you that because of this basketball related income. And you're going to get it regardless if you own a team and you, you know, start a member of the team or you're just on the bench. So right. it really worked out very well. And I think, I just hope it's not become a detriment to the league uh, because these players have to get these funds, the money, revenue that we negotiated, you know, into this collective bargaining agreement. Right. It's a responsibility to play. I don't like players sitting out, somebody play, play, come in to see you play, uh, ticket to see you play, you sit on the bench and you're not injured. I, I don't like, I don't think that's good for NBA basketball. I agree. I, think, I don't care if the coach play you two minutes. I think the players paying their money to come out and see you play for those two minutes. Yeah. So, uh, but yes, as a matter of fact, that's the year that one year they, Michael, Patrick, and a lot of superstars wanted to certify the union because they felt, you know, we're trying to work on the collective bargaining agreement. They felt if you create chaos, David Stern would give in because each player had to negotiate their own deal. If there's no union, you negotiate for everyone. But if you have no union and you certify the union, you got to negotiate with each player the benefits, salary. And so Michael, Patrick, and all these guys, Alonzo, they just felt that we could they could just leverage with NBA if David Stern to get certified. So I said, no, dude, you're not gonna get leverage David Stern like that. You can get leverage by collectively sitting down at the bargaining table, working out a deal that's gonna be good for you and good for your league. Uh, and I think at the end of the day, the game is more important than the league, I mean, more important than, than the management and the players at the end of the day. And were you sitting across the table from David Stern a lot of that time? Every every meeting we had, I was talking to David Stern. David Stern is uh, was so funny because he really was concerned about the welfare of the game. That was probably the most important thing. David was concerned about the image and the welfare of the game. That always number one with him. No one talks about David Stern. David Stern and the and the Players Association don't can't leave him out. Most people do revolutionized basketball in the early 80s when Magic and Bird came in. Yep. That was transformative. The whole league took shape of the Bird and Magic. David yep. Bird started along the Players Association, changing the image of the players. They changed the image of the league. The league was seen as being too black, drug infested. David Stern, the Players Association, changed all of that and made basketball you know, more popular and began to have a vision of basketball, which you're seeing today with international basketball players coming over and being an international game. That's David Stern's vision. That's the Players Association vision. You're seeing it in, in practice right now. It's yeah. phenomenal looking at it because 
I remember sitting in meetings and they were talking about that. So uh, and now to see it come to fruition, it's just it's just wonderful to watch the game and the young guys play. Yeah. And that'll be good with their salary. I love the fact that they're making the kind of money they're making and doing the kind of things they're doing. It's great. Yeah. It's 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 amazing. I I was telling my I've got three kids in college and I and I was telling a couple of them that uh I said when I was a kid, the NBA finals would be on after yep. the evening news on table. Mm -hmm. And they would say to you, if you want to, if you're gonna watch the game, turn away because we're gonna show you who won the NBA championship tonight. <laughs> so you'd look away. <laughs> and then you know, I remember watching Washington and Seattle, you know, that team with Sigma and Gus Williams. Oh, wow. Cape Delay. How crazy is that? That is crazy. Yeah. I just hope that my hope for the game and the league is that I just hope we don't take it for granted. Right. You know, the purity of the game is important. Mm. And that's what instead of guarding, skilled people dominate the game, which is turning to them before the guard dominated. I think our skilled, skilled players now dominate the game, which I think is a good thing. Yeah. 6 11, or, or 6 1, 6 2. Uh, I think at the end of the day, it's about the skill level, but the rebound and defense, all the skill kind of and passing, uh, the, the sort of gamemanship. I, I hope the game never totally eradicate all those parts of the game. Mm -hmm. Or eradicate guys like myself or Mark Jackson or guys who were phenomenal creating, making the other players better and not minimizing what you're doing as, as this facilitated pretty much. Mm. I just the game doesn't come down to the greatest player all the time when the guy scores 25,000 points and 30,000 points. The game can't you can't come to that get to that level because I don't think it would be a good thing. Right. In my opinion. Yeah. You know I hear you. here you could always watch some of the game. You could watch the rebound defense, you know, whatever you want favorite again. Uh you know, but it's still probably saying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I have to. Uh, th so this this next thing I, I found fascinating, and give me a minute to kind of walk through it. I know you're familiar with it. Um, I was reading something, and I want to make sure that first of all I give proper credit where credit is due. So there's a group called the Sports Analytics Club Program, right? Which is it's kind of a, a, a I think it's becoming a nationwide thing where data yeah. analytics for sports and kids, getting minorities and women involved, right? Uh, is is a is an entity and they've got schools as of a couple of years ago they were like approaching 20 schools it's probably more now one of them fordham prep which i'll give a shout out to because it happens to be where my father went to school um the fordham prep analytics club did a project <clears throat> on you and and basically your worthiness for the hall of fame and i found it <laughs> totally fascinating and, and a writer in portland named kerry eggers wrote about it i want to mm -hmm. make sure i give him credit too um and these guys put together like an entire presentation of, you know, kind of why you should be in the Hall of Fame. But they didn't go into it thinking he should be in. They yeah. went into it saying, what are the numbers going to tell us? Yeah. Yeah. And they kicked out. And they, they did a couple of very interesting things. They comped you to like Nate Thurmond and Bob Lanier and Walt Bellamy and a handful, handful of guys. And there's a calculation. And I'm not a huge stats guy, but I know yeah. in baseball, there's war, wins above replacement. Like if you if you were stripped out and just a average player was put in, how many less games would your team win? And in basketball, it's called win shares. <clears throat> and so I was kind of playing around with what they had done, which is fascinating. And basically their takeaway is you should be in. And I, I did a spreadsheet that looked at win shares, anybody with 50 or above. And those that are not in the Hall of Fame, there's 229 guys, 50 or above win share. You're fourth, and you're fourth out of 229. Um, and you and the other three above you are all like 120 to 120, mm -hmm. 125 or something like that. You are the only person in the first 81 people with 10 rebounds per game. There's not a guy close to you in terms of rebounds. You have to get down to like Zelmo Beatty at number 82 before yeah. you find another guy. So I'm curious, you know, it was utterly fascinating to me. It should work. I'm curious what your take is on it. Well, I, I think the problem I have, I think, I, I never really thought much about the Hall of Fame until these young kids. Right. Sort of 
uh, elevator work. And I was like, oh, wow, this got interesting. So they sort of perked my interest in it a little bit. And then I started looking at the numbers and I was like, no, maybe people should be in all the things. So they sort of got me that based on my numbers, I should be in it. But the thing I saw my head, I, I hope that the Hall of Fame is not about who has the biggest name, who scored the most points. Um, there has to be some barometer. You know, like in baseball, you get so many home runs, you get so many, you know, on, on base so many times, or, you know, sure. so many shut out. You know, there's like a, you know, a number in the game. If you hit right. like you, you're golden, you know what I'm saying? I just don't want people selecting to make it a random thing. Mm. You no know, kind of data or nothing surrounding like who gets in the hall, who, who doesn't get in the hall. I'm not yes. saying that I belong in the hall, they're gonna put me in the hall. For me, it's just not gonna change my life one way or the other. I'd love to in the hall. But I'm not gonna go out and market and, and become a salesman and get in the hall of fame. I'm not, I'm not gonna do that. Right. Uh, it's not my personality. Right. Uh, but I just thought at some point they can get to some kind of, maybe they already have it. Some some tools somebody use. Where it's not just uh, arbitrary. Mm. But that's, that's my concern. Yeah. Because that case, guys who scores, uh, like, you know, guys who uh, yeah, score the basketball, they, they're going to get in. You get 20,000 points, 21,000 points, you win. Right. And, and like you said, in my position, the position I played, rebounding wise, I don't know too many forwards that have made more rebounds than I do. Right. And on the flip side, and I still got 16 or 17,000 points. So I wasn't on a slug, you know, on offensive end either. You look at the defensive side of the ball, like on five, six uh, defensive teams. Uh, I'm one of like seven, eight, nine, whatever it is, you know, the double doubles. So, I mean, well, that's some pretty, some pretty strong stuff. Uh, oh, yeah. So, well, when you, look at, when you look at the list of your 17th all time in rebounds, when you look at the list in front of you, two things stand out. One is there's only one other pure forward. And that's Carl Malone. It's you and Malone. It's like, how is the second most prolific rebounding power forward not in the hall? Um, I mean, these are the things that I think are just going to be rectified. And you don't need it for validation. Your numbers are what they are. But it just strikes me that that's something that needs to be fixed. I, you know, uh, the baseball player, Lou Whitaker, second baseman for the Tigers, he he and Alan Trammell were like the best second base, you know, shortstop combo for like 20 years. Trammell got in, deservedly so. Whitaker's numbers are exactly the same and he's not in. And he he was on the ballot once, fell off, and that was it. And all of a sudden, like 25 years later, he's back on the ballot because they introduced war, wins above replacement. And they realized yeah. that of the, of the six second basemen in front of him all time in war, Four of them played like in 1910 and before. So there's only one second baseman who approaches him in the past century. And so all of a sudden, you know, his candidacy is like, you know, getting new life. So hopefully, you know, we sometimes make fun of the numbers and stuff, but hopefully this is one of those things that's like productive. Well, we'll, we'll see. I mean, like I said, uh, it'll be a great honor, but like I said, I don't still remember. Like I said, I'm a Renaissance man. You know, I got, I got the planes. I got, <laughs> I got the music. <laughs> the piano, the planes. Yeah, it's impressive. Got the hall. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, now, well, I have a granddaughter who's the greatest granddaughter in the world. She's uh, two months old. Oh, that's uh, so cool. Is that your first? Very first. And uh, she's, oh, I don't know. She's just the greatest. Life, oh, God, is good to me, man. God that's is good to me. And, this is just, just, just watching her uh, grow up and uh, being part of life is pretty special. Pretty special. That's, awesome. That's awesome. Well, Buck, I, I look at the clock here. I've taken up a ton of your time. Um, I can't tell you, first of all, it's just such it's so much fun, like hearing about, you know, the, uh, the days growing up in North Carolina, obviously those Maryland ACC years and wars, um, <laughs> you know, the years with the Nets and all those characters and obviously the success out in Portland. Um, and then, and then some of this other stuff, the, the players association and the, and the, uh, you know, kind of the numbers. It's a, it's a lot of fun speaking to you. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me on, Rich, man. You're one of the guys, so the most prepared and thorough guys that ever I can see you've done your work. <laughs> and so this is not, uh, 
you know, that's, that's not the norm. But uh, I really want to thank you for doing your homework and kind of, you know, doing, doing what you do and doing it very well. Awesome. Thank you very much, Buck. I really appreciate it. All right, man. Anytime. Take okay, care, take care. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in, and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.